I have been searching. Welcome to Following the Fire, a podcast for Christians who are rethinking their faith and need a safe place to doubt. As we wander through the spiritual wilderness, we want to find and follow God wherever the pillar of fire leads. And just like God's people in the Bible, we get lost, we miss the point, and we don't have all the answers. But maybe that's okay. We're on this journey together. I'm Nathan. And I'm Steve. Even on my heart. I just realized we all have like names that are Steve, Steven, Al, Allison, Nate, Nathan. Yeah. Yeah. Chrissy complains because her she's like, my name's already a shortened name. Because her name's actually Chrissy. It's not Christina. It helps me. My my family calls me Nathan, or like my friends, and everyone else calls me Nate. So. Oh, the lazy people. Wait, wait. Friends call you Nate or Nathan? Most friends. Because my family, I call myself Nathan. My family calls me Nathan. So people who know me, like for a long time, usually call me Nathan. Yeah, same with me with every, Stephen. Thing. Everyone at work calls me Nate. Oh. Well, it's shorter. It's just N and an 8. Yeah. And Al? You were Al to friends and Allison to Nathan, right? <laughs> yes, correct. That is correct. <laughs> or Ms. Buxton. Ms. Buxton. Well. <laughs> okay, what is the difference? I, I can never remember. What, Ms. and Miss? What's the difference? Okay, so... Uh, Ms. was actually a term that kind of gained currency in the 1970s with the second wave of feminism. Hmm. And the reason was that um, for guys, you get to be Mr. your whole life. It doesn't matter if you're six months old or 65 years old. Hmm. Um, it's actually only for women that there's this cultural need to distinguish whether or not we are available. And so you hmm. miss when you're single, misses when you're married, and good old second wave feminist said that's kind of sexist you can just call us ms <laughs> interesting so well it's kind of a good uh segue into the topic of the podcast today isn't it there you go <laughs> I, didn't, I didn't plan it that way <laughs> <laughs> but uh so we, our special guest today is a return guest allison buxton uh is here and we we had her on the episode about beth allison barr's book the Making of Biblical Womanhood. And uh, it was a fantastic episode. We got a lot of really positive comments about it. And so we're having her back because she threatened to come back and talk about feminism. I mean, offered. And <laughs> so we're taking her up on her offer and we're really excited to have her back here. So thank you, Al. And we're just going to let you kind of take charge of the podcast and <laughs> ask us questions, you know, tell us whatever you want to tell us um, because we are not the guys to talk about feminism or to teach people about it, if especially we have an expert, expert like you. So take it away, Al. All right. Well, I'm, I'm, I'm not sure I'm an expert, but thank you. <laughs> I'm relatively... Um... Way more than us. <laughs> <laughs> so I would never in a million years when I was younger have ever called myself a feminist. Um, it was the other F word when I was growing mm. up, and it was actually the really bad one. So I might have gotten in trouble for swearing, but if I walked in and said, hey, guess what? I'm a feminist. That would have been hugely problematic. Um, we didn't really even talk about feminism when I was growing up. Um, I grew up in the Church of Christ, by the way. <laughs> so uh, 
we talked about feminazis. Like it was okay to call people feminazis. um, Thanks to uh, the late Rush Limbaugh Limbaugh. and his shock jock show that, I don't know, came to take on like serious political currency somehow. Um, It masqueraded as as like a real show. Yeah, it was just interesting enough and just enough confirmation bias for folks in our circle to like take it seriously. It's like, guys, he's out to make money. <laughs> but um, yeah, so feminazis were a thing and feminists were absolutely not. Um, and so I, I'm relatively, I say all that to say I'm relatively new to the whole feminism thing. So um, definitely don't consider myself an expert, but I do consider myself a feminist, so that's where I'm at. <laughs> well, as long as I've known you, I've always thought you were a feminist. If that helps. That's not surprising, Steve. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's one of those everything is relative situations. I think. So. I think, I think it's definitely relative. And yeah. I think that I, I, it's probably inevitable that I wound up just admitting that I'm a femi- feminist. So, you know, um, so I, I guess I, I kind of wanted to ask you guys, um, what do you guys think feminism is? Like, mm. was it a bad word for you guys growing up? Like it was for me? Like, what's your take on feminism? What do you, what do you think about it? So everything that I know about feminism, or almost everything that I know about feminism, I did learn from um, the EIB golden microphone of Rush Limbaugh. So, um, definitely a negative connotation my whole life. And that never really, I never filled that in. Like in school, I got to explore all kinds of subjects that were outside of my comfort zone, like evolution or like different, uh, takes on scripture or, or all kinds of things. And, uh, never, uh, do I remember any amount of feminism except for, um, the Poisonwood Bible by Barbara Kingsolver. And then I read a lot of her books, and I think that's that's what I know about feminism, is her characters. I have never read any Barbara Kingsolver. So, so good. I'm completely at a loss. <laughs> and they're, they're fictional, and, and uh, a, a pretty common theme is maybe a strong female lead and maybe um, a reaction to patriarchal religion. That happens a lot. Yeah, my, uh, I was very much like both you guys, honestly, <laughs> the feminazi thing. Uh, they were always described as, and and like the I guess the the occasional uh, clip from like the uh, the Vietnam protests with um who was that the gal that what's her name oh Jane Fonda yeah there you go thank you thank you yeah. Jane Fonda. And every time that was on, it was like kind of portrayed as like stinky women with hairy armpits that are just wanting to be men, you know, and they just and like all they want to do is figure out ways to get rid of the men so they can just have babies without men. It's like, yeah, man hatred. Yeah, it was portrayed as man hatred is really what it was. It was was like they're horrible people that just want to kill all the men. So, yeah, demonized definitely a that is a common thing um like talking to people i know who are boomers who grew up during that time period who would never identify as feminist who like 
well, they just hate men. They mm-hmm. hate men, and they they really want to kill babies, and that's oh, I forgot the killing babies, right? They're pro-abortion, so mm-hmm. they hate men. They want to kill babies, and um, that was that was what I grew up with too. And um, it's just not the case. Um, so another thing that is when I've had conversations with people recently and we talk about feminism and patriarchy and all that stuff, they're like, well, the women just want to be in charge. And one of the things that I think is a misconception is that feminists think that the opposite of patriarchy is matriarchy. Mm. Um, so instead of all the men being in charge, we just put the women in charge. Mm-hmm. And um, that's, that's not, it's not actually what it means. Um, Feminism is actually, Bell Hooks defined it really, really well. She just said it is a movement to end sexism, sexual exploitation, and oppression. So we don't want to substitute a new set of tyrants for the old set of tyrants. Mm-hmm. No offense. I'm not saying all men are tyrants. That's not what I mean. I'm just simply saying it's nobody should be automatically in charge by virtue of something that they were just born with that they mm-hmm. didn't you know what i'm saying um, yeah yeah so there's that um another th- another thing you hear a lot is like you know well the feminists of the 70s they just wanted to burn bras and you know <laughs> just like all the yeah. sexual revolution and just like do whatever they wanted all the time and it's like yep. what i wish people really understood was that the story where that comes from was the um it was the um Miss America pageant. I can't remember what year it was. Late 60s, early 70s. Um, a group of feminists actually went and protested outside the Miss America pageant. And what they did was they got a big trash can with a fire in it. And they threw in things like frying pans. And yes, they threw in some bras and girdles. Um, mm. And then they crowned, a, um, I think it was a sheep outside and it was the whole thing was a performance to say all these you know symbols of oppression are garbage and also you might as well just crown you know a live piece of livestock because yeah that's how we're being treated so but that evolved mm. into bra burning feminists so it's oh, funny <laughs> you I, <have> it. <laughs> I assume there there was like a pandemic of undergarments being set on fire and it does sound like it was like a thing that happened. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, it was a pretty specific and targeted political protest. And, Completely misunderstood and, by the, by the patriarchy. Also bras are terrible. I'm sorry. I, mean, <laughs> I don't expect you guys to know this, but they really are awful. Like, well, there's a reason I don't wear des- one. Who decided that this was necessary, that everybody wraps themselves in wires every day. Like this is stupid. So, yeah. <clears throat> Like no, braces no, 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 only man. forever. That would be the worst. Right. Yes. <sighs> oh yeah. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> that doesn't sound fun. So you're admitting that that's the reason. That's the primary motivation for the feminism is disposing. Getting rid of bras. <laughs> getting rid of bras. <laughs> I think you missed the point again, Nate. Did I miss it? Right. Okay. That that happens sometimes. Take what we can get. It's fine. <laughs> I do. So I am interested in because. Feminism was such a taboo thing that I never even had a a reason to get to like be curious about it. Mm-hmm. 
And for me, I remember the the Women's March in 2016, I would guess. Um, and then, ironically, uh, or not ironically, but it surprised me, but I think it was the Black Lives Matter movement that it reintroduced me to feminism and how it has to do with hierarchy. Mm. Yes. Yes. Okay. Yeah. I might have skipped ahead, but the just a mind-blowing thing for me was, wait a minute, I'm kind of down on the patriarchy, and the feminists are too. <laughs> and, and specifically the hierarchy part of the patriarchy. Yeah, yeah. And I think and I think that that's what I was getting at when I was saying that matriarchy is not like the opposite of patriarchy. The problem is is that there's this 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 hierarchy um, yeah. as opposed to any sort of cooperative attempt at equality, basically. Um, yeah, but I'm I'm glad you brought up the Black Lives Matter thing because um, it's really not possible to talk about um, feminism today, which some people would argue that we're actually like in the fourth wave of feminism. Um, the first wave being the suffrage movement of the early 20th century, um, mm. then second wave, 60s and 70s, third wave, the 90s with Riot Girl and all that stuff, and then the fourth wave is Black Lives Matter and Me Too and all that. All that good stuff. Mm -hmm, um, right. But the most defining characteristic, I think, of or of feminism today is um, intersectionality and this mm -hmm. idea of intersectionality, which is, um, it is a, that's another really bad word. In it's a bad, religious. that's definitely a, a bad word. Yeah. <laughs> so, <laughs> um, if you don't mind, I may talk about that for just a minute. I would um, love to, if you did, because... I it, I went down a rabbit hole trying to figure out what that meant, and it was always, I mean, I I think I, I don't know, I'm not gonna say I figured it out, but and a long way of saying that would be fantastic, Allison. <laughs> so um, the term intersectionality was coined by um, Dr. Kimberly Crenshaw uh, in the late '80s, I think, and it was actually a legal theory. That she came hmm. up with um, because there was there was a case where some black women um, filed I think it was an employment discrimination lawsuit against hmm. um, a car dealership if I'm remembering correctly um, because the dealership was systematically refusing to hire black women they lost in court because the dealership hired women to work at the front desk as receptionists and they hired black folks to work as mechanics. So all the women working at the front desk were white and all the mechanics were black men. Mm. And so black women couldn't get a job there. They were being discriminated against, but the court essentially said they're not discriminating against black folks. See, they're hiring them and they're not discriminating against mm. women. See, they're hiring Interesting. them. And so she, coined this term to say that black women exist at this intersection that it's basically completely invisible um, legally. They, they have no standing. They, they can't win. And so intersectionality is basically an attempt to examine the way our location within various identities operates within the cultural system that we live in. So it's like, I, I'm a very visual person, so I'm, I'm imagining like 
all these roads of being, <laughs> all these mm -hmm. roads of like existence, and like wherever they overlap, that's an inter intersection, right? So, mm -hmm. and but but you're we're specifically talking about um, oppressed or uh, marginalized uh, groups, where those right. so like a black gay man would be an intersectional. Yeah. So someone someone who is a, a black gay man is going to experience what it's like to be a gay man in America, but also what it's like to be a black man in mm -hmm. America. And that's going to be a different experience than someone who is a white gay man in America or a black straight man in America or a black trans man in America. It's, it's going to be. Yeah. And I would assume that, um, that it's not, it's not like a straight math problem. Like the problems that they have, this group has plus this group equals this, the, the intersectional group. So it could, right. it could be like compounded a lot more. It's, it's, it's very complex, and I think one of the things that frustrates me about the concept is that people often dismiss it on the grounds that, oh, it's just identity politics, mm. as if that's just a blanket, like we're trying to lump people together, when the truth is is that the systems that we live in, for example, the legal system, they're tr that system is lumping people together. Mm -hmm. And intersectionality is actually a way to see people as individuals and to understand better their lived experience and to kind of question how we can improve the systems. Hmm. But yeah, everybody's going to have a different set of intersections. And, and just being, I don't know, I think more than anything, if we get could get people just to not consider all of their own intersections as normative for literally everyone else that would do wonders. But, you know, <laughs> that's asking too much. <laughs> <laughs> that's funny because I feel like that's actually one of the easiest ways to identify with that idea is to start to think about your own economically. How did I grow up? What region of the country or what, region of the world that I, what language do I speak? What mm -hmm. is my ethnicity? What's my religion? What's my, and it's easy to start to put those together. And I would say evangelical Christians understand completely what it is to be like a white religious person in like a liberal town. Um, and it wasn't that I was conservative and it wasn't that I was religious, but it was like these, these things that came together. Mm. It, it's almost uh, like that would be a way to build empathy to see how that could be feasible with some other combination of things. Ideally, that's absolutely the way it would work. Um, that would make the most sense, but, <laughs> but, but the reaction is, but that's not what's happening in, in reality, which, which is interesting. So I wonder, you know, what's the, what's the barrier for, from uh, these set of circumstances influence me, or I've experienced this, or I've seen this happen. And, and how would that apply to a, another group or a disadvantaged group? Yeah, and I think, you know, in one-on-one -on -one conversations, I think it, it does tend to work. Um, I know talking with Jonathan, my husband, um, we went round and around about the concept of privilege uh, several years ago, back when we were doing this, because, I mean, he didn't grow up in a wealthy family, and <laughs> so right. the idea of I have privilege, um, and just simply looking at him and saying, yeah, but you got to walk through the world as a white guy. And he was like, oh, yeah, you know, you're right. You know, 
imagine going through all the things you went through, but not being white, not being male, not being straight, you know? But yeah, I think that, I think if people are even at all open to it, understanding that intersectionality is a way to describe complexity and starting with your own, your own complexity and going from there and saying, Oh, this is a thing I should afford other people. Yeah. (laughs) One could hope. How does that lead into, um, I mean, you, you kind of brought that up as like a very important thing to know, to understand feminism today. Yeah. There's been quite a bit actually written and said about the failings of the second and third waves of feminism in the United States, specifically as it relates to race. And so, you know, we often look, we look back at the 19th Amendment, we say, hey, oh, yay, women got the right to vote, you know. Um, in the early 20th century, and it's, well, white women got the right to vote mm-hmm. in the early 20th century. It wasn't until the second wave, much later, that women of color were afforded the same rights, just because of the functioning of Jim Crow. And there was a lot of compromise that went on within the first wave of feminism when the suffragists were originally trying to get the right to vote. The movement was originally bound up with abolitionism pretty tightly. Frederick Douglass was for women's right to vote way back in the 19th century. But when you look at the actual um, political fights that occurred in the early 20th century, there were race was a huge part of it. White women were essentially saying, we, we give us the right to vote so we can help keep black people in their place. I mean, it was there were deep racist ties in, in the movement from the beginning. Um, so you had some people that were saying, no, it needs to be all inclusive, but you had the majority of people willing to compromise um, in order to just get the vote for even some women. And then, you know, during the second wave, you had feminism bound up with the civil rights movement, things like that. But again, you had people willing to compromise and say, just give us the rights and we'll deal with, we'll deal with the race stuff later. And to this day, you have you have women talking about you know equal pay and things like that, but what they're not doing is is talking about the disparities within the disparity where black and brown women make significantly less than white women, even though we all make less, generally speaking, than white men. And so at every turn, feminism in America has basically betrayed women of color. Just every time we've gotten the chance to compromise, we do. And because of that and the power of the Black Lives Matter movement, right now we're kind of in a moment where I, I, I'm hopeful that more voices are being elevated that aren't just privileged white women saying, you know, I would like to be in the C-suite, please. <laughs> <laughs> As opposed to, you know what, we really need we really need some universal daycare. Um, we, we, we need that. We need paid family leave. We need healthcare. We need we need all these basics that we can uh, we can afford, and we're not going to be equal until all of us are equal together. So, mm. so yeah, intersectionality is really key. But white women have to wake up and say, yeah, just because I'm comfortable and happy doesn't mean we've arrived. Yeah, I was talking to someone a few months, a couple years ago, actually. Now time flies, and talking about how oppression happens whether you feel it or not and how 
like specifically in the churches, the Church of Christ where we grew up, um, this person who is, is very happy at the Church of Christ, and fine, that's fine for them, but um, as actually Christian and I were talking to this, to this person, and they're like, I don't, I'm not oppressed. And like, well, you are, but you don't care. <laughs> it's like right. the things that you care about don't, are, you're, not, you're not blocked from doing the things that you care about. Or you don't feel like it's a it's an oppression or anything, but the the problem is still there, even if and even if you don't feel it. And we're just humans are just so self centered that way. It's just, unless you unless you stop and have some empathy, you're gonna assume that everybody's just like you. Yeah, yeah, and that's the considering all of my own experiences and desires are normative. Everyone's like me. Right. Right. Yeah. And how do we fix that? <laughs> so it's like asking, how do you get the world to, to be nice? Right. <laughs> it's like, I all mean, I'm asking for is people be nice. Just don't be a jerk, man. <laughs> but I feel like uh, my starting to get that feeling of what I think is normative or what, what my life experience has been I can't map that directly onto other people probably was heightened during the me too movement. Mm -hmm. This movement really took fire and, and came into the mainstream where women were sharing their stories and you couldn't anymore say there's this, you know, it's liberal media or it's, it's this attack against some powerful man or something. It, It was bubbling up kind of seemingly all around from regular people who I knew or people um, who you wouldn't normally hear from uh, in an experience that I can't understand, you know, that doesn't, doesn't compute that, that I don't understand. And I I don't even know if we're still in that movement or if it, you know, did it, did it fizzle out, you know? Um, Now, now we have a word against it called cancel culture where you can instantly shut down the debate. But um, can you talk a little bit about what that was and what, um, how that's influenced feminism. Absolutely. Yeah, no, the Me Too movement, um, I'm going to look it up because I want to get it right. Um, it caught it caught everybody's attention on Twitter and it, it got a lot of popularity with women just popping up and saying, oh yeah, me, and that was the hashtag, Me Too. And it was just women telling stories about harassment and sexual assault and things like that. And the fact of the matter is, is that I actually don't know any women who I have talked to at any length at all who couldn't have posted at least one story. Mm -hmm. I mean, literally all of us have stories to tell about that. Um, But I'm trying to remember the there's, so there was a name, um, yeah, Tarana Burke. It was actually founded in 2006 um, by a black woman named Tarana Burke. Um, she founded, kind of, she coined the phrase and started it, but it caught fire on Twitter when, I can't remember which actress it was, one of the white actresses, I don't remember, um, <laughs> picked it up and, and ran with it, right, and then everybody paid attention. But I think it's... <sighs> That stuff has been embedded in our culture for so long. It's just been such a part of the expected experience. It's just, you know, unwanted hugs and shoulder rubs and people mm. 
feeling like they can just comment on your body at work <laughs> yeah. has been the price of doing business since forever. It just, yeah. it just, it is what it is. And so I think that, I mean, drawing attention to it now and having people actually, you know, the truth is, is that we're not going to make any progress if, if guys don't pay attention. Yeah. We just aren't. We would never have gotten the vote if all of the guys who were elected officials hadn't said, yes, we should definitely ratify that amendment. And so to me, that's been the biggest positive that's come out of the Me Too is that a lot of guys are like doing the work of saying, wait, you mean <laughs> it's this pervasive? It's really everywhere? And that's how change actually happens. And so I don't know what the status of it is right now. I haven't heard anybody really talk about it too much lately well it was around that time where i you know i i like to think of myself as a pretty nice guy and um you know christy and i'm we've we've been almost married almost 25 years and we've had a great relationship and i i always thought that i was like in tune with what's going on with her and all that stuff and around the time the me too movement came along she i somebody said exactly what you said al about like every woman probably has a story that's like about something horrible. And, um, and she's like, yeah, I do too. I'm like, what? <laughs> and, and so as I started waking up a little bit more about the, about uh, life for her at church and the thousands of little things that I don't ever see or hear that she has to deal with all the time. Like I always think of, well, you know, the things that come to mind, like, well, women can't be the preacher at an, in a church Christ or the song leader or whatever. It's like, okay, then that's a, that's like a binary. It's like you're a preacher or you're not the preacher. <laughs> but there's all this all this other stuff about just how your how your ministry is treated and how yeah. you are expected to do X Y Z because you are a female and all this stuff that I never never thought about and it just was it, i remember sitting in her living room one night and she was just explaining all this stuff i'm like how did i not know this we've <laughs> <laughs> been married 20 years how did i not know this stuff and she's like because like like you said it's like it's so normal yeah that that this how it's expected so you nothing's gonna change unless something big happens and and the the me too thing really, I think, hit a lot more areas of, of life for people than I think any, anybody realizes. Yeah, and it's there's there's a cost. There has always been a cost to calling it out. Mm -hmm. And it's, if you want to keep your job, if you want to keep the peace, if you just simply don't want to be labeled a difficult woman, you just let it go. You just let it go. Uh. Because if you, if you start calling it out then you get to be called a feminist killjoy <laughs> nice mug <laughs> thank you <laughs> you have yeah, no sense of humor right we're just trying to have fun here at the party al <laughs> I know. making everybody feel bad for you know being sexist right yes and somehow that's the way it's always worked though like if you um so i've been around politics a little bit here in oklahoma um, I'm sorry. And 
<laughs> yes, greetings from Gilead. No, um, it's been. <laughs> you think I'm kidding? <laughs> no, no, you're not. That's, that's I'm not. why I'm laughing. I'm laughing so I don't cry. It's not funny. Yeah. Oh no, same. Um, <laughs> but it's it's uh it's astounding. Like um, I am a feminist. I you know me too, and all of this, and you work in politics, and you're like, wow, still? Really? This is happening? Wow. But you just... And, and it's tough, because when you allude to things that occur, well-meaning gentlemen will say things like, who was it? Who was it? And it's like, you don't understand. I'm not opening the can of worms. We all know how this ends, right? Hmm the women who actually name names and step up and say that guy, um, quite brave, very, very brave, but you just, there's too much to lose and there's not actually anything to gain. I mean, yeah, I mean, not, look at Clarence Thomas's the way it is. Exactly. Yeah, you know, when he was yeah. up for uh, Anita Hill, right. What was her name? Mm-hmm. When he was up for, uh, being, uh, put into the Supreme Court, Anita Hill came came along and said, this guy is a bad dude. (laughs) And here's all the things he did to me. And she was just played off as this, like a a whiny woman who just didn't understand the joke. Right. And like it completely changed her life. Yes. And in in not good ways, you know? No. Because now that's who she is now. Right. That's where we all know her from. Right. And it's, yeah, as we've seen multiple times now, you can do whatever you want. And as long as you got the right, you know, political credentials, you're still going to make it on the Supreme Court. So yeah. <laughs> I, I think one of the things people like to say is, well, these women come forward and they make these allegations and they do it for the attention. Mm-hmm. And it's, if you watched any of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, I mean, the poor woman was shaking. Like, you could just look at her. Look at her body language. She yeah. is not lying. She does not want to be here. Yeah, so one thing that I, and this is a, a kind of what you're saying is that this is a common response to um, any kind of feminist or, like, let's be nice movement. Uh, <clears throat> there's always, like, the, the dudes who come along and say, well, not me. Not all men, mm-hmm. and I, and and then it gets like turned around and and like it becomes cancel culture, which is itself a bad thing. So I, I'll, I'll be honest. When when the the Me Too came thing came thing came along, I, I just kept thinking to myself, but I'm not that guy. I, not all guys, you know. But then if I say, but not all men, then that's not the right thing to say. <laughs> Explain <laughs> to our our listeners why that that is not helpful and it just it kind of makes things worse so um not all men obviously not all men (laughs) (laughs) we know (laughs) and something to keep in mind is that if someone is telling you about a negative experience or harassment or god forbid an assault or something like that if they're just if they're even telling you this story about bad experiences that they have had, they consider you already a safe enough person to talk to. And so yeah. 
but I would never takes that conversation and it removes the focus from this very painful thing they're sharing and it centers yourself for your own right. comfort. So one of the things we mentioned before is this, this idea of privilege, like at least in the area of race, it kind of tends to make sense to us, I think hopefully now to some degree. Mm-hmm. But I think in the area of gender, we need to examine it as well. Like if if you haven't had these negative experiences, that's great. I'm genuinely happy that you have not experienced this. But if I'm telling you that I have, then explaining to me why you're a good guy shuts down my ability to share. It, it yeah. just it tells me that you're not actually listening and that you don't recognize that I already see you as a good enough person to share with, you know. And it's, everybody has more learning they can do, you know. Even if we try our best to be good people, try to be anti-racist, try to be feminist, we, we do our best with these things. There's there's always more to learn. We can always do better. And I think we need to, it would be nice if we could get comfortable saying, you know what, I never thought about this situation from your perspective what what could i do better how could Mm -hmm. i be a safe person and an ally and thank you for letting me know (laughs) yeah i think that is where there's the hardest time for evangelical christians to kind of grasp this concept and i kind of want to explore a little bit just how how christianity um, but also just our our upbringing of evangelical or church of Christ Christianity has to do with this. But a thing that that I run into a lot in the evangelical church is this idea that um, only individuals are guilty of things and not like systems or mm-hmm. peoples or communities or you know if I'm saying not all men is saying well I'm not one of the bad ones therefore I have no like I've done. I'm done. I've done my job. I have no responsibility. Um, but also there's this belief, we know it's the Bible alone and in Christ alone, but I think we also believe very strongly in the power of intention. Like uh, if you have good intentions, you can't have bad results come out of that. Like I meant well, um, nobody tried to do this. Nobody set this up, the system to hurt people or to create these outcomes. So if a bunch of good, well-intentioned Christians come together and they're trying to follow Jesus and they have their best intentions, I think it's very hard for evangelicals to um, also realize that that, like, that can still have bad outcomes. Yeah, um, I this is a thing I go this is a thing I go round and round with my kids about, right? Like, I know you didn't mean to, but the result of your action was this and you need to take responsibility for that (laughs) so we are yes we can have the best of intentions but you know the road to hell as they say um but yeah no i think that the the systems and the sort of hyper individuality of american evangelicalism is something that absolutely should be addressed um there's actually this really great book i read a few years back um called the democratization of american christianity and it was written by a guy named Nathan Hatch, um, just really interesting piece of um, sort of 
history specifically of American evangelicalism. He spends a lot of time talking about Second Great Awakening and all of that stuff and how American flavors and denominations as we know them today were a lot of them were born out of that time period following the American Revolution where there's this huge anti-authority. We just kicked out the British. We don't need we don't need seminary trained pastors and we don't need college professors and we don't need physicians and lawyers and all these uppity people with book learning. Mm-hmm. We don't need them to tell us it's all about the individual and their bootstraps. Um, yeah. And and Jesus, he can come too, but mostly <laughs> the individual. As long as he brings his own bootstraps. <laughs> <laughs> you know, um, <laughs> we're not gonna we're not gonna talk about how we won't let entire segments of the population buy shoes. You've got to bootstrap. <laughs> um, that disinclination to look at systems. Um, and look at groups. I mean, it's a hallmark of American Christianity right now, really, right? When we first switched from going to the Church of Christ to going to one of the Reformed Presbyterian churches, one of the things that stunned me was confession. Like, they actually had, you know, in the Church of Christ, of course, we have quiet time before communion, where you're supposed to, like, silently get your head right and just, like, manage your crap in your brain, right? Which yeah. never worked for me, but anyway. <laughs> Say a prayer of forgiveness or something. Yeah, yeah, say it, then hope you don't sin between then and the passing of the plate, which was too big an ask for some of us. Um, (laughs) But but at this church, they actually had kneelers, and we had that quiet time where you would silently pray. But then before we all got up off those kneelers and took communion, in the bulletin there was a group confession, and it was, we were collectively confessing sin. And that was so foreign to me. That idea that we could have sinned as a group. What does it even, what does it mean? Yeah. <laughs> and um, by what we didn't do, by what we've, we've right? done and what we've left, <laughs> left undone. undone. No, no, yeah. no. <laughs> what? Sins of omission. What? Santa doesn't <laughs> see what you didn't do. It's not a category for me. Anyways. Right. Yeah. And, but we're like, as Americans, we are like allergic to that idea. It's got to be the individual. Oh, I, yeah. I mean, it can't be a group of us because then then we would then we would have to take responsibility as white people for what we have done, right? <laughs> can't be having that. Can't do that. No, we can't. We got to keep that door closed. We cannot look at, look at that. Yeah, and that that ends up in things like stories of abuse. Um, like church to where mm-hmm. each time it happens, the group's response is there was a bad apple or that, and not what did we do that allowed this to happen? Like what ecosystem did we set up where this was possible? It's, yeah. it's more like here was a problem, push it under the rug or deal with it. However you do, but then proceed as, as usual without this idea that, you can be as a group complicit in something like that just by the systems that you're allowing. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think we wouldn't, we don't seem to have much problem um, taking that perspective when it comes to politics. We can, we can look at political groups and political parties and say, well, if you adhere to this set of ideas, that's bad. Right. But if you're part of, this set of ideas, it's okay, but when it comes to, I don't know, 
you know what, I take that back. Sometimes we're willing to do it. We're willing to do that when we're demonizing other people. We just mm. have an allergy to taking responsibility for our own garbage. So Yeah, the the, the ones in our group it was because they were bad behaviors. The one in the right. in the other group, it was because they adhere to they are a result of the system. So Yes. They have bad the, ideas, bad beliefs. The magnifying glass of introspection that, you know, never comes towards me and my group because we're I know that I'm a good person and I'm trying my best and I know my group is a bunch of good people and they're trying their best. Yeah. And I know that other people are bad and trying their worst. <laughs> So it's so it's what I expected, right? I, I'm kind of hearing. So I don't know if this is right because, like I said, feminazi is more familiar a uh, term to me than feminism. But is it is this accurate in any degree to say that feminism is is just one of the reasons for it is just to understand? It's a lens to understand and see the world. Is that? Am I getting close? <laughs> is it a way to, to to look at things and question things like power structures and hierarchy and um, interactions that you wouldn't have seen without that lens on? I think so. I mean, that's that's really how it operates for me. I mean, I think that with any with any movement that has any sort of political history or political arm or whatever, you're going to have people who are purists who are like, I mean, there there were women in the 1970s in the second wave who were like, we should just all be lesbians. We should just do that and just <laughs> just get rid of the guys. And <laughs> which, I don't know, I mean, it's probably reflective of the time. I feel like it kind of misunderstands <laughs> LGBTQ Problem. identity as we know it today. Um, yeah. <laughs> not a thing you just kind of choose to do. Um, but yeah, no, I think that it's absolutely a helpful lens just to it's another angle to consider things from. Um, one of the just useful, most practical everyday feminist tools that exist out there is the Bechdel test. I don't know yes. if you guys know about the Bechdel test. Is this test. the conversations in a book? I do. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Or a movie or, it was, yeah. It was just a, just a way to, it's a way to gauge representation. And, and I think representation is something that has been lacking and it's getting better. Um, but it, for people so who don't great. know Alison Bechdel is a cartoonist and she came up with this idea in the eighties, I think. And, um, it's basically a three prong test. Anytime you watch a movie, are there two women characters who some people would say they have to be named? Okay. Um, maybe, maybe not. Seems pretty strict. Two, <laughs> seems, <laughs> seems like <laughs> a high bar, bar, right? Yeah. Two, two named female characters have to have a conversation that is not about a guy. That's it. It's like the lowest bar possible. I swear. <laughs> this is so depressing. Does the gospel <laughs> pass the test? Um. Um. So. <laughs> does the I Bible? Does. <laughs> I, don't, I don't know. So there. <laughs> so um. So Nadia Boltzweber, um, in one of her sermons I was listening to, actually she says there are three books of the Bible that passed the Bechdel test. Hmm. That's a great trivia. Yeah. So one of them is the, um, one of them is the, 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 the Jewish, the Israelite handmaidens who were like, um, the midwives. It was the midwives under Pharaoh. 
when Moses was born. Um, Shipra and Pua, I think, were the two midwives, had a conversation. How are we going to get around this? Um, I think Ruth and Naomi um, passed the test. And then I'm fuzzy on whether or not the conversation between Mary and Elizabeth with the Magnificat and all that good stuff, I'm fuzzy about Mm. that. If you think God is a dude, then it kind of doesn't pass. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> yeah, the interaction, this, yeah, interesting. But if you think that God is beyond gender, then I feel like it's it's good. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, when I when I heard about the Bechdel test, I thought that's kind of stupid, you know. Of course, I was it was in you know feminazi mode. Right. Um, but then I started seeing how many films and TV shows do not pass that test. <laughs> like some of my favorite things in the world, like. All the Indiana Jones movies, all the Star Wars movies, all it's like on on down the I mean, Star Wars like barely had one woman in it for for, I know. for goodness sake. But um and it it's I tease at home or I I joke around a lot, like with my as as with my like my inner conservative. Like I'll hear myself saying things in my head that I would have said a long time ago. And sometimes I just say them at home just to be stupid and my kids are like, Don't say that. <laughs> but I'll like the inner conservative will say to me, well, you know, it doesn't matter. What if the story's just about guys, you know, it's a big deal, you know? Well, okay. Not all men, <laughs> you know? And, and, uh, and then I come back and say, but, but it's not that big of a deal. You're overreacting. Right. Um, and to me, it, it always helps to have, I think one of the reasons the me too movement really helped is that we had I suddenly had a lot more first, hand accounts of things that that went on or the way that people are treated and otherwise it's it's easy to just assume that it's everything is an anomaly right um right and i was wondering if you could so you are uh you are an attorney mm-hmm. officially um, <laughs> technically <laughs> <laughs> and what was it I, I can't imagine that would have was an easy thing, easy world to get into. It seems like a, it seems like an old boys club type thing. Oh but, yeah. <laughs> what, what kind of a struggles did you have? Just like I'm sure, I'm sure that kind of galvanized you more to make you more of a feminist going through that, or were you already kind of all there anyway? So um, by the time I was in law school, we were already approaching like fifty-fifty uh, men and women representation. Oh, okay. And- in, in grad school and law school and oh, stuff like that. Um, so that wasn't, you know, because law, law school was also academics. I mean, I mean, if I could be a professional student for the rest of my life, I just would. I would just just keep getting degrees. I would just never leave because yeah. I, love, I love school. <laughs> but when I finished law school, I, I actually became a prosecutor for a year and a half and worked in the DA's office here. And, I mean, you want to talk about an old boys club Mm. Oh my gosh. <laughs> it was amazing. Um it was truly amazing because law being a prosecutor, you're I mean you're technically part of law enforcement and mm. uh, it is a very uh, yeah, I'm trying to think of a good way to describe it that doesn't involve any swearing. Um it's it's just it's really conducive to being like super conservative 
And a lot of women get into those spaces. And in order to do well, we know kind of what role we have to fill and how we Mm. have to behave. And so you get a lot of the internalized, uh, honestly, it's internalized misogyny, but you go along with it and you joke about it because the guys see me as one of them. And Mm. you just, that's, and that's the way it works. And you perpetuate the problem because you're, you're in and you're part of the group and you're part of the team. And I mean, never mind what they're saying about you when they think you're out of the office and can't hear them. Um, And then, I mean, don't even think about the defense attorneys. It was just, yeah, no, I have some good stories about that. Um, (laughs) Sorry to bring it up. (laughs) It's fine. It's good. It's good. Um, But yeah, I mean, being a female attorney, I mean, the classic joke, I guess, from back in the day is, what is the difference between a female attorney and a pit bull? Oh. Lipstick. Oh. <laughs> and so what does that do? I, we're dogs. We're just dogs, right? I mean, animals, yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. <clears throat> it's. I was not sorry when I quit practicing law. Let's put it that way. <laughs> like, it kind of, it was another question I was going to have. It kind of answers it a little bit. How in the world can a woman go through life in the world we live and be oppressed and be treated as an object or an animal and not be a feminist. (laughs) You know? Yeah. Um, Well, I mean, in church it was because it was God's will, right? Mm -hmm. I mean, I, growing up, it was just, I was so mad at God for so long Mm. for making me female. Like, Mm. Why? I have, I have a brain. I can, I can learn. I can have conversations. I can, I can, I could do things, but um, it's just his ineffable plan, isn't it? So, um, right. Trying to reconcile that theologically was well. I haven't done it yet, so that's where <laughs> I am with that. <laughs> but when it comes to things like politics, I mean. It took me a really long time, so I'm not going to pretend like I have the answer. Um, but it, the the politics is so bound up with our religious belief in so many cases mm. that untangling those things is an absolutely Herculean task. And and it's it's one of those things too that it's like if you're a white woman and you're pretty comfortable. I mean, the proximity to power is pretty good. You know, it's, you don't even necessarily feel like you're settling. But women, if they don't have to face the fact that sleeping with the guy who's in charge doesn't mean you are in charge, um, if they don't have to face that, then they don't. Because it's hard. Yeah. It's just hard. Because then when you start realizing things and you have to, you, you feel like you have to do something about it. Yeah. Because if you don't, then you're just letting it happen and kind of perpetuating right. the whole problem. Yeah. And it's messy mm. and scary and hard. And it's easier to just simply accept the place that you've been given in the hierarchy. Because that's really all it is. 
who's who is above whom on the food chain and yeah white women aren't doing the work <laughs> just by and large we're not doing the work yeah i was just thinking about how powerful we've said the word a few times but normative and the way i interpret that is just like the pattern of the world around you is so mm-hmm. powerful in shaping who you are and so we talked about about the Bechdel test and what's powerful about that is for men, it reinforces that I am the center of the universe and interesting. And the only time women ever have this, has a conversation is about me, you know, and for women, it's also reinforcing of, of a pattern that they are used to as well. Like women and men write books that don't pass the Bechdel test because our right. society and the, the egg came first, but we, we, we are born into a, a thing and it's so hard to see the pattern of your own upbringing or the pattern of your own thinking or the pattern of your own assumptions. And so we shouldn't underestimate how difficult it is to see your own system, let alone like be, see your own, you know, community or as, as maybe having a problem or being the problem. And then figuring out how to do something about it. Yeah. It's like another level. Right. And it, it's trying to say that the pattern that we're all comfortable with, like all of us are feel fine with this or have felt fine with this, saying this pattern is hurting me or us and we should change it is, is a Herculean task to get people to believe it because a lot of people are comfortable and then let alone to like change it. Yeah, agreed. And it, so often there's... It's, I mean, it's, it's just psycho- it's basic psychology, right? Like there's enough intermittent reinforcement. There's enough small crumbs of reward mm-hmm. for maintaining the system compared to the disruption that we fear will occur and maybe really will occur if we buck the system. And so we'd rather, we'd rather get those few crumbs than risk any sort of disruption. I mean, the best example for me is, is looking at, um, you know, like the antebellum South or even the Jim Crow mm. South, right? You look at the position, you want to talk about a hierarchical society. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you yeah. know, you've got white men on top and then you've got white women underneath them. And then you've got, you know, maybe black men under them. And then, you know, black women, of course, at the bottom, right? You've got this very specific and rigid system and white women are given a very particular role in that society and in that economy. And it's to be, to be considered pure and put on this pedestal Mm. and, and you get to be, you get to be a Southern lady, right? I Mm -hmm. mean, (laughs) um, dress. Yeah. But here's the thing. Even if you're a poor white woman, you have more status than a black man. And so you've got to maintain those categories and you've got the entire culture set up to maintain it. Never mind the fact that who's actually in charge here? Who's actually making the decisions, right? You're not, you're not actually winning at this. You're just not as low down on the ladder as the people below you. And so I, not in such an extreme way, but I think still functionally, we still have that going on. 
Yeah, which is which, which makes sense when you know you've heard the phrase like the uh, like equal rights is not like pie. You know, yeah, like you don't scoop some of it out and there's less rights over for everybody else. But when you think of when when an equal rights for someone else reduces your power and changes the power structure for you, it is pie. It does take things away from the, your plate and puts it on someone else's. And yeah, I mean, it just, it gets on the surface of it. Feminism seems so simple <laughs> to a guy, at right. least like, right. Oh, women want to have more rights. Gotcha. Done. Do it. Or, you know, put a, make a, a, a amendment to the constitution and we're done. We did our yes, job. Please let's do <laughs> that. Can yeah. we get the ERA? <laughs> and but it, it's it just it's so tied into so many things and one thing that i i hear a lot is that well i'll just ask this question how is it going to help society how's it going to help me as a as a white dude because i mean this is what i I know the answer to these things, but people 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 are so fr- so self centered that like they don't want to put in the work to do the thing if it's not going to help them. So is this going to help? Is 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 the system that we have set up now a problem for me? I mean, I I got I'm I'm super super uh, privileged. So how's this going to help me? I mean, I feel dirty. I feel gross asking the question actually. <laughs> so I'm so glad you asked, Steve. <laughs> <laughs> So I think um, last week there was actually an article in the New York Times talking about the crisis of men and boys in this country. And um, it was talking about the way that since as a society we have moved away from the strength-based economy into more of a services and goods and, you know, just just a different type of economy, the sort of the traditional ways for men to succeed and be successful and just, you know, consider themselves men within society, it's changed. It has shifted Mm -hmm. rapidly. And we have not found a way to help guys be healthy. I mean, the deaths of despair are skyrocketing for men. And one of the great things that Bell Hook said is patriarchy is not going to heal our men. (laughs) If it was good for boys... They'd all be great. They'd be doing fine, but it's observable that they're not. So one of the things that I feel like we have to talk about is there is a there is a version of masculinity that is not healthy. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I'm not going to use the popular term because it's so off-putting and it makes it sound like all forms of masculinity are bad and they are absolutely not. They are not all bad. But we've got a very narrow set of standards for what it means to be a guy. Um, Mm -hmm. It's a a very transactional. If you perform in certain ways, you get to be a man. Um, If you ever fail in any of those things or you diverge or, you know, maybe you just have a personality that isn't that doesn't enjoy throwing axes. Maybe you'd rather, I don't know pet a kitten or something, drink a cup of tea. <laughs> well, you're going to have to turn in your man card. Um, oh, man card. <laughs> yes. And that's, that is so, um, 
I mean, that's just garbage. Like that, yeah. that takes what we are doing is, is when we enforce these sort of patriarchal norms, we take boys who are, they're, they're good human beings and they have feelings and they're thoughtful and sensitive and sweet. And we tell them, don't ever cry, toughen up. You, you got to act like a man. You're the man of the house. Man um, up. You got to man up. If you are in the, you know, one of the conservative denominations, yes, I know you're 12, but it's time to get up there on stage and lead a prayer in front of everyone. <laughs> Whether you're terrified or not, you're right. going to do it because that's what it means to lead. And we, we whittle away huge chunks of the image of God off of boys. Mm. And then we call that manhood and masculinity. And so what feminism at its best, what it has to offer is the chance for all of us to be full human beings. Guys are, they should be mm. allowed to experience emotions beyond just like rage. Yeah. There's, there's a much wider range <laughs> and we don't do anyone any good when we require people to be less than who they fully are. That's so a that's really what feminism yeah, offers that's, you, Steve. <laughs> that's that. Well, that's actually fantastic. That that's a. You're gonna have to let that soak in too. <laughs> no, that's a. I've heard this many, many times, but just oppression hurts everybody. So you can be the white person or the male or whatever, but the the system that is oppressing the the groups of people is also dictating what you have to be and what you have to do. And so mm -hmm. those little things where you, where you differ, that's, those are tiny little, I don't know if this counts, but those are tiny little intersectionalities where if you have a disability or if you have, you know, I was a single dad, or if you have, you know, a, just a, any divergence, your the system is now saying that that's not correct and that's not okay. Um, hmm. I love how you connected that to the image of God and how we're we're starting from from the that image that we have and we're whittling away parts of it that that the mm. patriarchy or that we're saying is not not okay to be there. Yeah, you might be you might be the top of the hierarchy in some ways, but a golden cage is still a cage. So. Yeah. <laughs> so if we could uh, kind of winding down here a bit, if we could get practical. For a second not that we haven't been but you uh have children mm -hmm. um <clears throat> specifically in this context how how would you what are the things that people can do to to raise their kids i guess boys or girls really to be more aware of this and more how do you raise boys to be feminine feminists feminists <laughs> if i could get the word out well, I know my boys would tell you right off the bat that they're feminists. So, right. <laughs> indoctrination. Um, I mean, at its finest, right? <laughs> yeah, no, I, that's a great question. I think that, you know, not again to be the feminist killjoy in every situation, but I mean, asking them questions, like they all, they all know what the Bechdel test is and saying, oh, that was a really fun movie we just saw. Do you think it passed? You know, and then having really good conversations about, you know, about why or why not. 
um, listening to them, encouraging them to express multiple emotions properly. Mm -hmm. There's a time and a place and they're all valid. You have to, you can't be ruled by them, of course, but you know, letting them explore kind of how they feel about stuff. And one thing that I will never, ever, ever, ever say to my children is stop crying. You are not allowed to cry because whether or not it's rational doesn't matter. They're sad, right? <laughs> right. Um, Oh, let's see. We talk a great deal about, um, we have conversations about consent. We have pretty blatant conversations about whether or not you can just run up to someone and hug them, what's appropriate mm -hmm. to say and what's not. You don't comment on people's bodies or their looks. Um, oh, what else? Yeah. When the schools offer comprehensive sex ed, we absolutely sign them up. <laughs> <laughs> So lots of little things. Facts for everyone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, one thing that I, I decided early on, I was never, ever going to tell my son things like man up. Right. And um, men don't cry and things like that. And I'm thankful for, for my dad because my dad is very much not the stereotypical uh, you know, dude bro who's all uh, man, man, manly, quote unquote, and... Uh, he he would cry if if there was a sad thing going on. I mean, he showed emotions, and so I'm thankful that I had that. But um, it's even even as much as I've tried my hardest to not instill that kind of a worldview on my son, it, it comes in from the outside. It's still it's still there. For sure. um, so the last question I had for you is a super easy one. Um, how do we? How do people? Deal with this in church. Oh, uh, so I don't. That's a is huge a question. question. Right. Statistically, <laughs> poorly. Right. <laughs> Just no. <laughs> what should one um, do? So, of all places, you would think that church would be the place where we could have these conversations, right? Yes. I mean, you guys were talking on one of your recent episodes about. Like the curse, are we supposed to reinforce it or push back yeah. against it? And this, at least in my limited experience, has not been an area where the church is very willing to engage. Um, mm. I participated in a book about women in the church at one point, and the responses were they were underwhelming because my chapter mm. was about feminism, and people were like, oh, they're promoting feminism. Oh, it must be bad. It's like, guys, I literally just called for a conversation. That's all I did. Yeah. I said, let's let's have a conversation because stuff is going on in our country. And a bunch of the people in the pews next to you actually marched in the women's march. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, it was it was not well received. <laughs> Mostly, I think, because I just used the word feminism. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, I mean, you would think that church would be the place where we're trying to, where we're working hard to see the image of God in people and we're, we're trying to understand others and we're fostering empathy and we're pushing back against the curse and we're trying to recognize the kingdom of God right here and right now. And um, it's, feminism threatens that power structure. Ah, mm. oh, power structure. <laughs> 
Yeah, and I think I mean we have such a wide variety of listeners. Some people are have left the church long behind, and some people are still very, very involved. And you know, I, I can see somebody wait. It's like if if I woke up today or tomorrow as a an elder at a conservative church of Christ, and suddenly I, I'm like, oh, I let I am now a feminist. <laughs> I don't know how I would start changing things. That's a, I mean, I don't know what I'd do or if it's possible. I start teaching the, the, the kids classes subversively. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, it is, it is one of the reasons we left the church we left because the way that women were treated and I, yeah. we just kind of had enough. I, I mostly have talked about my choice to leave was mostly premeditated when I was going to get married, I was going to go strike out on my own. But if there was one reason that I really was going away from the church of Christ rather, rather than just kind of my own direction was what my son was going to see lived out was just this site. What was going to become normative for him was that the 12 year old kid boy is has more value than than the women uh, in the congregation and it's i think it would have been a well so here's when the women stood up for themselves it looked like power grabs and mm-hmm. you know um troublemaking and it really has to come from the men who are comfortable and who are who are benefiting, and uh, it, it's hard to imagine that that working though. It's hard to, hard to imagine that infiltrating um, a place. Yeah, I mean, it's the as long as you get a few crumbs of reward for maintaining the structure, it's, yeah. there's just the motivation to change it, especially for the benefit of someone else. It's <laughs> right. Can be done. It can be done. It can be done. It's, very unusual but well we all have we all have a lot of work to do <laughs> in this area too um yeah and, and I'm, I'm glad what you i like what you said about your son's saying being saying i'm a feminist because i think it's important that we realize that you don't have to be a female to be a feminist you know exactly and exactly. i think that we need more feminist dudes we do yes <laughs> i'm trying <laughs> <laughs> I think we're, we're getting there. Aren't we all? <laughs> yeah. Right. I have a feeling wheel, right? I'm looking at it. I have a feeling wheel so that I can start to learn the names of the things that I'm feeling other than hungry and tired. <laughs> so, <laughs> I mean, I'll be honest. Hungry and tired are at the top of my list. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. It's hungry, tired, or good. <laughs> <laughs> my, I think mine is hungry, tired, super pissed off. And then everything else is pretty good. <laughs> when I'm angry, it's because I'm hungry or tired. So that it, it's the root. Well, thanks a lot, Al, for your time. And thank you. Do, do you have a look to close out? Do you have a couple books or, or a book or anything to recommend? People oh, read? sure. Yeah. <laughs> so one thing I would say is if you're interested in intersectionality, um, Google um, Kimberly Crenshaw. TED okay. Talk. She did a TED Talk. So 
as this person who coined the term, she explains it in, I mean, 15, 20 minutes tops. Um, good stuff. Um, uh, it depends on how deep you want to get into it, really. Um, uh, I really enjoyed The Second Sex by Simone de Beauvoir, um, but that is quite the undertaking. Um, if you want a good look at um, just some of the history behind it, uh, The Woman's Hour tells the story of the fight for the vote, um, and that's just fascinating. Um the Crunk Feminist Collective, if you want to check out um, Cutting Edge of Black Feminism in America Today. That's a really good one. Uh, by Dr. Brittany Cooper and others. You mentioned uh, Bell Hooks several times. Yes, Feminism is for Everybody by Bell Hooks. It's a classic. Easy read, super short. Um, oh, Feminine Mystique by Betty Friedan. She was, it's a classic. She's a little problematic, but... God, it's a good <laughs> book. <laughs> She's a heavy hitter, so. All right, well, maybe we'll have you on again uh, some other time to talk about more feminism because it seems there's a lot going on here. Uh, yeah. <laughs> a lot to dig into. So thanks a lot for your time. See you later. Thanks for having me. Good to see you guys. Good to see you. Hey, thanks for listening. We hope you got something out of the episode today. Check the show notes in your podcast app for all the links and references that were made, or you can find it all at followingthefire.com. If you'd like to support the show, please go to patreon.com slash followingthefire to become a patron. And of course, we'd love it if you rate the podcast and share it with others. See you later. And I'll give you all my heart. Don't you know it's all I have Even on my heart Can't compare with what you're worth I have been running Almost all my life But you You always chase me down